0: Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 28th of October with me, Ian Welsh. A few weeks ago, and as a preview to some of the conversations that we'll be having at the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference in Amsterdam next week, I spoke with Mike Senior and Abraham Buffo from Pro Forest about how landscape approaches are developing and the specific drivers for business to continue to innovate and some signposts for progress. That's all to come. First, though, is some sustainable business news this week compiled by Innovation Forum's B Stevenson.
1: Mondelez International have pledged $600 million towards sustainable cocoa sourcing by 2030 in an effort to combat low farmer pay, child labour and deforestation in cocoa sourcing regions. Mondelez is the latest in a line of multinational companies to announce efforts to clean up their global supply chains, this in the context of increased reputational pressures and ahead of the EU's proposed due diligence legislation. The company's cocoa life scheme will become one of the four pillars of its long-term strategy. This news comes as cocoa regulators from Ghana and the Côte d'Ivoire have boycotted the annual World Cocoa Federation meeting in Brussels over a pricing dispute with multinational chocolate companies, which they say are resisting paying living income for farmers. The two main cocoa-producing countries imposed two premiums on their beans, the first an origin differential and the second a $400 per ton living income differential. Whilst both countries have said that they would not sell cocoa with a negative or a differential, many of the world's major chocolate makers and cocoa traders are pushing for as low as minus £200 per ton, resulting in the effective cancelling out of the living income differential. The regulators said. A new forest declaration assessment has found that whilst deforestation slowed by 6.3% last year, most nations are not on track to meet international pledges to stop global forest loss and degradation by 2030. The progress that has been made has been especially helped by efforts by government and corporations in Indonesia to reduce the negative impacts of palm oil production. However, forest loss is still being driven by global demand for commodities such as timber and fossil fuels. The report says that governments need to do more to incentivize and encourage the private sector to safeguard forests. More fiscal support is also required as forest conservation efforts need between 45 billion and $460 billion per year to meet the 2030 goal. Commitments today average less than 1% of this, the report concludes. Ahead of COP15, the UN Biodiversity Conference being held this December, leaders of more than 330 businesses, including H&M, Unilever and Nestle, have urged world leaders to make nature impact assessment and disclosure mandatory for companies by 2030. In an open letter to heads of state, business leaders have stressed that maintaining the business and financial status quo is economically short-sighted and will destroy value over the long term. The firms, with combined revenues of over $1.5 trillion, state that they are currently taking voluntary actions to assess, disclose and address their impact on nature. However, the playing field will need to be levelled, as they note that businesses and financial institutions need political certainty to change their business models. The Financial Conduct Authority has proposed new measures to clamp down on greenwashing by investment firms. Concerned about exaggerated or misleading sustainability claims, the FCA has announced a new package of measures aiming to protect consumers and improve trust, bringing restrictions on how and when terms like ESG, green and sustainable can be applied. It would also introduce sustainable investment product labels, consumer-facing disclosures on the product's features, and requirements for distributors, including investment platforms, to ensure that these are accessible and clear to consumers. The FCA is calling for feedback in a consultation paper by the end of January, and it aims to publish its new rules by mid-2023.
0: Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum is next week on the 1st and 2nd of November in Amsterdam, this year in partnership with IDH. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. And we can still squeeze a few more in, so if you want to join us and experts from Cargill, Airbus, Mighty Earth, Unilever, PepsiCo and many others, then head to the Innovation Forum website where you can still register. Recently, I spoke with Mike Senior, Deputy Director for Conservation and Land Use, and Abraham Bafo, Africa Regional Director at Pro Forest. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talked about developments and shifts from individual supply chain thinking to landscape approaches, how these help companies meet their commitments, and the impacts of impending legislative changes. Abraham, perhaps you can start by giving us some insight into how you characterise the shift to a landscape approach from a more strictly individual supply chain one.
2: As probably you may be aware that landscape approach is being driven by companies, government, and several stakeholders, and this is for several reasons. For example, unlike the individual supply chain approach, landscape approach provides a management framework that can integrate the actions of multiple stakeholders within a defined landscape towards a collective goal. And I think stakeholders are beginning to find that as an interesting and a great opportunity for them to work together to agree on a collective goal and then work collaboratively to achieve that goal. And again, this is also important because most issues associated with commodity production and, for instance, deforestation and other social issues are generally national or jurisdictional issues. And that by that, they require different actors to work together, including the private sector, government, civil society, and others. And so, for example, in some cases, to address deforestation, you may have to come out with a new law or regulation or a policy change. And that is something which is within the ambit of government, not the private sector. So bringing all of these stakeholders together allow you to ensure that different stakeholders do what they do best, which then complement each other's activity or intervention to deliver a common goal. Secondly, as you may probably be aware, private sector commitment have in most cases been commodity specific, whilst deforestation and other social issues occur at the landscape or jurisdictional level. And in most cases, may involve several actors, for instance, the big players, the medium players, the small folder farmers, and all of that. And being driven by several commodities within this defined landscape. So, for instance, you could have cocoa, rubber, palm oil, which are all forest rich commodities being produced in a defined landscape. And so if you work within a particular supply chain sector as cocoa, then the gains you may be making in addressing deforestation cocoa supply chain will be negated by rubber production or oil palm production. This landscape approach for us is is the way forward in our judicial process, the way forward in addressing the issues around deforestation environment and social issues that we have with uh, commodity production.
0: Mike, perhaps you'd like to come in as well now. How do you characterise the shift to a landscape approach?
2: I don't think it's a new shift. I think
3: actually what we've seen from the private sector side is the growing momentum for landscape action over the last three to four years. And I wanted to just mention one example, which I see as a bit of a culmination of that shift, which is last year the, the Forest Positive Coalition of the Consumer Goods Forum publishing their landscape strategy, which is something that ProForest provides some technical support on. But what that is is an example of multiple companies getting behind the importance of landscape approaches. The strategy includes basically all of these big consumer goods companies committing to investing in landscapes equivalent to their production footprint. So that's really significant and demonstrates the scale and the critical mass that we're starting to see for this. And the other big piece of that strategy is that the coalition is already supporting and will continue to support a portfolio of landscape initiatives across the world. Those are initiatives being supported by many technical partners, IDH, WWF, Earthworm, just to name a few, ProForest also involved in some of those landscape so we've got a critical mass of companies supporting, and many technical partners also helping the implementation of those initiatives on the ground, together with local governments and producers, who are of course leading stakeholders in those initiatives.
0: Ibrahim, are there any other landscape
2: initiatives that impress you in particular? Yes, there are some landscape initiatives or element of landscape initiative that impress me. But for me, most importantly, a landscape initiative that brings all stakeholders together to discuss environmental, and social issues that are specific to the defined landscape and engaging in a multi-stakeholder process to agree on a shared goal and objectives for the landscape. And going beyond that further, to take collective action and to achieve the shared goals and objectives are what is impressive to me. And I find in particular collaborative approach that brings local communities Farmers and all the stakeholders to work collaboratively to achieve collective goals very impressive. And also, in particular, government leadership and ownership is very critical. And it's something that I find impressive, particularly with the Eshnapo Esotifin Landscape Initiative in Ghana. I find it very impressive because, as we all know, when it comes to issues with forest management or forest protection, Without government leadership, it's going to be very difficult to deliver on that because sometimes it requires changes in policies, legislations and others. So having leadership from government is critical. That I find are very impressive. And it also shows the kind of leadership that government wants to have for addressing those issues within the landscape.
0: Mike, perhaps you can give us some examples of how landscape-level approaches help companies meet their commitments. So let's think about nature, climate and social issues then. Let's start on nature. Nature, in a way, is the trickiest one. It's
3: clear that landscape initiatives are, for the most part, setting out to try and protect forests and natural ecosystems as part of the suite of environmental and social issues that they're tackling. But I think from a company commitment perspective, this is the one that's still a little bit in flux. The Science Based Targets Network is working on a set of science based targets for nature, which at the moment haven't been finalised. And there's various bits of guidance in development, some of which is actually out for consultation now. But what we're seeing is that companies are definitely recognizing landscapes as part of the solution to support nature it's not quite clear from the frameworks that exist at a global level how exactly that's going to work in practice what we can bring though from the landscapes that we're working in and many others is a pretty clear indication of what kind of actions are needed and what kind of contributions landscapes can make to biodiversity conservation in general which should if they're effective be supporting both producer country targets under the convention of biological diversity, for example, but also company commitment. We know that protecting natural ecosystems is going to have to be central to that. These are the areas that harbour the most biodiversity in nature and that will continue to bring those gains. So any targets which most initiatives have to protect forest natural ecosystems will deliver that. I think the key question is where are those efforts focused? Many of the global frameworks that have been developed, and we've seen this a little bit with climate, are focused more on efforts within supply chains most of the standing natural forests and natural ecosystems that exist are not necessarily on farms. They're outside of farms, it depends a bit on the commodities. There are some examples where you have land banks that retain forest and natural ecosystems. But in many cases, actually, it's outside of current supply chains that the forest and natural ecosystems exist. So I think it's crucial that actually these investments continue to be made at a landscape level beyond farms to support that forest and natural ecosystem that's left, because that will help deliver on both nature and climate targets some of the frameworks globally don't necessarily incentivize companies to make those investments. I think that's quite key. From a social perspective, I think this is something that more progress has been made on and and works central to a lot of landscape initiatives. And one thing we've seen, for example, in the palm sector is that landscapes can provide an excellent framework for ensuring smallholder inclusion. And what I mean by that is in practice, by investing beyond supply chains and at a landscape level, you can support smallholder improvement, you can support livelihoods at a local level. And that means helping communities and farmers meet their basic needs, but also over time to put in place action plans to get up to meeting company requirements as well. This can start with helping to meet government regulatory requirements, often as a first step. The standards for palm and MSBO and ISPO are a crucial way there of getting scale across support for farmers. But then over time, companies may be able to provide additional support for going further as well. I think that's really helpful. And what that can mean in practice is that actually by investing in smallholders, in some cases, they may come back into the supply chain. So if companies have set very ambitious targets for being deforestation free, which... In some cases, it might have been challenging for smallholders. By continuing to invest in landscapes, smallholders can come back into supply chains in the future as well, which is vital to ensuring rural livelihoods are supported.
0: As well as landscape thinking, certainly companies are also focusing on science-based targets and, and Scope Three supply chain emissions, in particular. Mike, how are these approaches best combined? It's clear that companies need to take action within their supply chains. A lot of
3: scope three and the science-based targets initiative guidance will focus on eliminating and reducing emissions within supply chains. That needs to happen, of course. But actually, as I've touched on, for emissions linked to land use and deforestation, a lot of that happens actually before areas come into supply chain. So deforestation happens, crop is planted, and then it comes into a supply chain when a perennial crop like oil palm comes to fruit. So the key point here is how do you incentivize that investment at the landscape level as well as taking action within supply chains? And as far as we're concerned, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive and you need to do both. And actually by investing in landscapes, companies can also play a role in supporting governments to deliver on their nationally determined contributions, which is really crucial because governments need to make their own targets and demonstrate progress, but companies need to play a role in supporting that. And then in return, companies should be able to deliver their claims within their supply chains, but also these more qualitative claims about how they're supporting and working with governments to deliver that. And then this has been a very sensitive topic, for example, in Indonesia, which very rightly has been wanting to make sure they have the right regulatory framework in place to ensure that they can deliver their own commitments, whilst also not disincentivising companies to be part of collaborative processes. And I think that's coming to a point now where we're seeing some progress.
0: Abraham, What are the specific drivers for companies that enable them or drive them to continue to invest in landscape initiatives, you think?
2: We are aware that a number of companies have shown interest and are working on landscape initiatives. But for the companies we work with in Africa, they are more interested to invest in landscape for a number of reasons as we speak with them. One is that it helps them to fulfill their corporate sustainability commitment, which is critical because that's something they have committed themselves to do to ensure they remove deforestation from their supply chain, they address social issues, workers' rights, labor issues, and all of that. And they find landscape approach which gives them the opportunity to be part of a multi-stakeholder process to identify the issues and to work together to address them as the best way to go. Again, it also gives them the opportunity to work with government to improve on regulations or mobilize investment, for example, as in the esnapo Asitifin case. And this is also because if you look at situations or jurisdictions where companies working within their supply chains find it difficult to deliver impact because laws are not effective or enforced or comply with, then... Having the opportunity to work with government helps you to address that particular issue. So that's one of the drivers for companies. And then it also allows companies to combine funding and effort, even with their competitors and other stakeholders, to work together to address common goals and common objectives. The stakeholder approach it's also something that is a driver for companies to to get into landscape approach because that then. Have them build relationships with other stakeholders. And then in particular, producer companies help them to sort of retain their license to operate within the landscape where they work in, because then they will get support from the different stakeholders that they work with. And as Mike earlier said, landscape approach also provides opportunity for these private sector companies to include smallholders, as well as the large producers in the landscape. In a situation where we have only large companies or big players in the landscape using certification approach, we know that that does not deliver the wider impact across the landscape. But having the landscape approach with all the small working together to address social issues provides opportunity for them to ensure they are sourcing responsibly from that region or jurisdiction. And these are some of the attractions for companies to engage in landscape approach.
0: What then are the right policies then and regulation that can help deliver on the aspects that you just mentioned?
2: In some places where the policies or the legislations are not right, or even when they are right, are not enforced, it becomes difficult to companies to deliver their goals and objectives when they work within their supply chains alone. But then the landscape are provides the opportunity for them to work with government to address policy issues. So that then comes to the question, your question of what a good policy looks like. From my point of view, a good policy is one. That balances economic development with environmental protection and social inclusion. And I think these are very important uh, because you cannot address deforestation just through policies without looking into the social well being of the people who live within and around the forest area. So social inclusion is critical. And of course, economic development is important and economic development that also benefits the local people. So speaking about economic development, is one that also benefits smallholders and farmers within the landscape and not just looking at economic development at a macro level. And two, talking about environmental protection piece, it must also include incentive for producers and also for smallholders to even protect and conserve conservation values within agricultural landscape. Because oftentimes what we see is that we have policies that set aside protected areas. And then we have large areas that are seen as agricultural landscape, as we know in Africa and most places in West Africa. In some cases, most of these agricultural landscapes hold conservation values. So how do you incentivize farmers to operate in these agricultural landscapes? You also protect the conservation values in those landscapes. And so a good policy should be able to look at all of that.
0: Mike, I wonder if you want to comment further. I know we have, coming up in Europe, the European Union due diligence legislation. How is that impacting, do you think, or how will it impact as it comes in? The development
3: of the EU's deforestation due diligence legislation is clearly a positive shift. It's a global responsibility to tackle deforestation. The EU and many other consumer countries are recognising that. So that's clearly a positive shift. However, I think we need to look at things in the round, and and particularly when it comes to landscape action. There are potentially some unintended consequences of these kind of regulations, because what we've seen is that the way many of these regulations are being set up is they're very much focused on getting compliant product into markets. What that means for companies is they've got to focus on within supply chain management systems and ensuring... 100% compliance of these products. That's, of course, important. Companies do need to do that kind of due diligence, but we need to look at whether those kind of policy mechanisms are actually going to support protection of forests on the ground or even stopping deforestation on the ground. And what we're seeing, and I think it's a very real risk, is that some of these regulations may drive companies that are supplying agricultural commodities to source primarily from lower risk areas without investing in change in high risk areas, which is where the action and the money and resource are really needed and where companies need to work together with governments to enact change. And we've seen, I think, from years of action and and learning a bit from the FLEG process and, and the VPAs that actually you do need to work together. And these processes are complex and they take time. There is a slight risk that the EU regulation and some of the others will disincentivise companies from being part of those processes if they don't allow companies to report on those contributions and get recognition for some of these contributions they're making to these wider collaborations which ultimately are where effort is needed if we're going to tackle deforestation on the ground.
0: So do you think essentially that the legislation needs to be shifted so that companies are not disincentivised from operating in the high-risk areas where their efforts are most required? I think so. And there's clearly a balance to be struck here. It can't be an opportunity for greenwash and for
3: delaying action. But if companies and other stakeholders have got very clear time bound targets and action plans in place, for example, at a landscape level to work together with producers, with local government to eliminate deforestation, maybe put in place traceability systems and monitoring systems you know, over a medium term timeframe, three to five years, that should be rewarded. That's where the effort needs to go is allowing companies to be part of those collaborations, enabling them to be able to report out on them, and also providing some support for those processes. There's a lot of discussion in the EU about producer partnerships, forest partnerships potentially, but no one's quite sure what that looks like. And I think that's where major markets like the EU need to use some of their leverage for good, be part of those solutions, but also supporting and incentivizing companies to invest as well, because they can't drive that change on their own. And sourcing companies have to be part of it. And they have a massive role to play in supporting their suppliers and others in those landscapes to improve practices.
0: At every stage, having producer voices as part of the discussion is really important. So Abraham, how do you think that we can bring in producer
2: voices most effectively? The issues about deforestation and social issues happen more in producer countries. And so producer countries understand the issues probably better than anybody. And if they understand it better, then they should be in a position or this their voice matter a lot in terms of defining policies and approaches to dealing with the issue. And therefore, their voices should be on the table when we're talking about how we can deal with these issues. And one example of the producer country voice in Africa, which I find very interesting and very important, is the African Sustainable Commodities Initiative, which is a transition from the African PAMO initiative to this new initiative, which is a multi commodity initiative. And this is about 10 governments in Western Central Africa who have come together to define a single set of principles for responsible production of commodities in West and Central Africa. This has evolved. It started from the African PAMO initiative and has evolved into the African Sustainable Commodity Initiative and has a track record of how real impact has been made in these countries. So it's not just producer voice, but it's also about confidence for investors coming in to know that there is a proven framework that works on the ground. And so this is how I think producer voice becomes important and should be integrated into global discussions on how best to deal with deforestation. They understand the issues, from my point of view, better. And in any case, they will be more at the implementing end if we have to address deforestation in tropical countries.
0: Mike, do you want to add anything from your perspective? How do you think we can bring in producer voices most effectively?
3: I think Abraham said it very well. I just wanted to add a few thoughts. Firstly that this is something that that Proforest has been starting to discuss with some of our partners like the TFA, Tropical Forest Alliance, essentially to build on the sort of examples that Abraham gave of helping define what good producer partnerships could look like. So what are the existing activities that are already happening through things like the Africa Sustainable Commodities Initiative, through the CFI and many other initiatives that are working at a production level and have been for years actually to implement and improve sustainability on the ground And how can they be combined together? So you have a package of activities at a farm level, at a landscape level, at a national level um, that are needed ultimately to stop deforestation on the ground. That work's really important to put a positive story, as Abraham was saying, to investors, but also to regulators to say, look, we don't need to reinvent the wheel with this. We've got to support what's already happening and invest in these locally owned initiatives.
0: So, Mike, what are the signposts for progress that we should be looking out for over the coming months and years? This is all about balance and transparency. So we've
3: talked quite a lot about what kind of initiatives are already in place and could be supported. At the same time, we're hearing, on the other hand, from civil society and regulators and others that that time is short and we're in a crisis and we need to act fast. So I think to square this circle, what we need is more transparency on what's being done by companies, but also that means transparency on realistic timeframes. Making these changes at a production level takes time. We need to continue to make those investments and we can't move back into a siloed way of working. So to do that, we need transparent, time-bound targets to take action within supply chains, but also beyond. That hopefully can provide the assurances that we're all looking for, that progress is being made, but also we're putting our investments into the right places.
0: And Abraham, what do you think in terms of the signposts for progress that we need to be looking out for?
2: The producer countries in West and Central Africa have committed to this APOI, which has then transitioned into African sustainable commodity initiatives, which for me I see as a bold commitment from the 10 countries. We've also recently realized the EU coming up with the regulation and EU due diligence framework, which also shows commitment from the consumer side. I think the next progress is to align these commitments practical implementation to address the environmental and social issues that the world is facing today with commodity production.
0: Thank you very much to you both, to Michael Sr. and Abraham Baffo for all your insight into how the landscape approaches is, is shifting and some of the unintended consequences that we need to be looking out for. It's been a fascinating conversation and thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. And some of Mike and Abraham's colleagues will be attending the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference in Amsterdam next week. Check out the Innovation Forum website for all the detail if you want to join us, as well as the latest analysis and interviews. And do look out for a new op-ed highlighting new guidance on how to integrate action on land use change and emissions reductions. So that's it for now. I've been Dean Welsh. And until next week, when I'll be reporting from Amsterdam, goodbye.